Growing up, I had a girlfriend test, and it worked a little bit like this. We, uh, my parents had a lake house, and we had a canoe, and uh, what would happen is um, I would take these girlfriends on a canoe ride, and uh, I wanted to see what they were like paddling and canoeing together uh, on the lake, and uh, so, uh, you know, we, I tried a, a few different girls, I remember one girl, usually it went like this, you know, we would paddle across the lake, which was a little strenuous, and I would see how they were at paddling and stuff like that, and then I'd do a little splashing to see how they would respond to that, you know, splash them, get them wet. And um, I had one, one girl I dated, um, it just, like, she was always telling me how to steer, right? It was, just, it was just crazy, and then when I splashed her, it became this all-out war and it was just this fighting and bantering the whole canoe trip. And then there was another girl um, that she could not paddle to save her life. And also, you, you must think I'm the most meanest guy ever. But um, she couldn't paddle to save her life. And then when I splashed her, she just got really, really upset. And it was just a whole scene and all those things. And then there was this one girl that I took out on a canoe ride. And we did the thing. She paddled well. You know, she let me do the steering. I splashed her. She splashed a little bit back. It was fun, all those things. And then we're on the way back um, to the lake house. And uh, yeah, I, I'm sitting in the back. It's kind of cross-legged in the back. And this girl, she is weird. She looks back at me and gives me this smile. And I'm like, what is going on? And the next thing I know, she flips the canoe over, and it was we were in a pretty shallow place. I remember my head hitting the bottom of the lake, and I think at that moment, I think when I, my head was hitting the bottom of the lake, I said, this girl is for me. <laughs> That's my wife now, if you didn't know. Yes. Yes. That's right. What would possess... A southern sweet girl to flip over a boat. Well, it paid off. Today, we're going to see another woman that takes risks. What motivates her? What's the payoff? In Advent, we're talking about longing. A longing in darkness. What do we do in this broken world? What risks should we take? And what risks pay off? This morning we will see answers to these questions through an immigrant as she goes to gather wheat in the fields. It's a longer passage to read. Again, it's narrative. It's a very interesting story from Ruth chapter 2. So let's pay attention as we look at God's word from Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of the grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was in the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. 
Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant, who was in charge of the reapers, answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsels in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, uh, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, He said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young, young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother in law The word of the Lord. Again, we are in Advent, and uh, usually in the fall we go through an Old Testament um, pa- um, scripture um, book, and that we did Hosea, and then here in uh, the spring, winter, spring, we'll be going through a New Testament book, we'll be going through the book of Acts. But in that time between, we're going to go through this genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew, specifically four characters in this genealogy. Again, the Old Testament is a thing that points towards a Messiah, a Savior to come, a king that is greater than David. And you see that the genealogies in Matthew and Luke 
are showing how this Jesus has come from this line of David. And it is how he is the Messiah, the new king. And so what the Messiah was going to do and what the Old Testament in Israel looked forward to is one that would restore the brokenness between God and humanity. So this lineage tried to bring credibility to Jesus being the Messiah, the King. You would think, though, when you think about lineages of someone that's going to be a powerful king, that it would have these powerful characters that came before. Ones that show great strength, that show power in Israel and all these things. But instead, you see some very interesting characters in the genealogy in Matthew leading up to Jesus. Specifically, the four women that are mentioned in this passage that lead up to Jesus, that are in his genealogy, are vulnerable and weak. We saw Tamar cast away because her husband died, and then a husband has given to her, wouldn't have nothing to do with her, and instead she had to prostitute herself out to her father-in-law to have children. And that kept the lineage going. Then we saw Rahab, a prostitute from another nation that was being destroyed by Israel, trusting in God. And from that came the lineage to Christ. And today we see an immigrant widow. That's lineage has been almost taken away, that is impoverished, that is also a part of this lineage to Christ. We see that God shows his faithfulness through the weak. That he works in the hardest situations to accomplish his purposes. Each of these women took risks, but they relied heavily upon God. And through that, God accomplished his purposes, his purposes. Their faithfulness, God's sovereign plan for a Savior to be born. Well, usually I, when I've preached Ruth before, I've gone through the whole book. Only we're looking at one chapter in Ruth. So I need to give you a little bit of the background of this book. At the very beginning of the book, we read that there was a famine in the land. And so we read that Naomi and her husband and her Two, uh, and her two boys fled Bethlehem in Israel to go to Moab, another nation. And there in, Mo in Moab, her two sons got married to Moabite women, non-Israelite women. Her husband died, and then her two sons died, who had not given birth to any children. So in that day, to not have any children to keep on the lineage would have been devastating. For Naomi to continue the lineage, she would have had to get remarried, had sons to then remarry these girls that had married her sons. That's how they could continue in the lineage. So she basically said, listen, my life's not good. I'm going back home because I heard things are better there now. You guys just stay here, said you guys. I should, that's a Midwest thing. 
you ladies should just stay here. One daughter says, okay, sure, I'll stay. But the other, Ruth, the famous line, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God. So she goes back into this very hard situation, goes to this new land with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, in chapter 1, you see Naomi comes back, and people are probably wondering what happened, right? And she says to her neighbors and friends or those that are there, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because everything has been taken away. My husband, my sons, I have no money, I have no land, I have no subsistence, I have no lineage. I come empty-handed. Now imagine this, you're Ruth. You have left your own land to go back with your mother-in-law. Your mother-in-law comes back and says, I come empty-handed, bitter. Well, you are right next to her, right? Wait, what about me, right? I'm here. This is the amazing thing about this book. The comparison and contrast between the one that should be faithful, right? Naomi, the Israelite, who has seen the faithfulness of God through history to his people. And Ruth, a non-Israelite. How do the two respond? And really it's communicating to the people of Israel and communicating to us here as the church, what is our response? So what does Ruth do in this situation? Well, we see in chapter 2 what she does. Again, they have little subsistence. They have no land. They have no protection. It's not a good place at this point in time to be a woman in that place. But you know what Ruth does? She goes out and takes part in an Israelite law. The law is this, that farmers, when they, after they collect their grain, that they would leave some left over on the ground, this called ger, gleaning, that they, these people would go that do not have money, that are poor, that could come and collect that that is still left over on the ground for subsistence to be able to live. And that was a law set up by the Lord to help the poor. Now what is crazy about this is the danger of doing this for a few reasons specifically for Ruth. One, she's a woman doing this. Two, she's doing it with no other man to come alongside her. Three, she's an immigrant, a non-Israelite, a Moabite doing this. You see that both Naomi and Boaz recognize that her doing this is dangerous. And he even mentions she could be assaulted by doing such a thing. But she goes out and does it. Now, she even goes further than that. Something that we don't always see in the text, but the, for the Israelites, they would see it. There's two parts 
of gathering the wheat. There were the reapers that came and would cut it. And then right behind the reapers would be the gatherers that would gather the grain. And then after all that is done, then those that would glean would be able to come. But Ruth asked instead a bold request that I could come between the reapers and the gatherers to collect. She's asking to do something that is above and beyond this law in hopes that something good would happen. A very bold request. It would be like an employee saying, yeah, I know you have me at this job paying $15 an hour, but I actually want that job that pays $40 an hour. And to ask the head of the field, this is what I want. And that is what Boaz finds out this woman is asking. Bold. I had a boss one time. He liked to call people like this people with moxie, right? An older guy. I don't even know that word. Maybe older people know that word, moxie. It came from this famous drink, right? This soda. That's, I don't know if they still make it or not. But it has come into the urban dictionary of American culture as someone that is got grit, has determination, that is going after it and taking risks. Ruth has moxie. Frank Farley, he's a uh, sociologist at Temple University, and he talks about uh, the United States and what makes us unique. He calls us a type T nation, meaning a nation that likes to take risks. Maybe it's because of our ancestry of crossing the ocean or those that want better life. That's just our makeup. We are people that take risks. And it's in our DNA as Americans, right? But as we've become more prosperous as a nation, as we see that, you know, the risks are becoming less, we still like to feel alive by taking risks. I don't know, jumping off airplanes, you know, bungee jumping, whatever it might be, we love the idea of risk. Life cannot just be bland. We've got to keep on going. Which can have some detriments to it, right? There was a, an individual who was talking to future political leaders, and he wanted to share with them about risk and he's, you know, saying that the inevitable risks that occur when passion and conviction are not su um, sufficiently tempered by humility, there can be problems, he said. And he was talking about how we need to make sure that we have humility even in our risk-taking. This is what I found very interesting about this individual is talking to these future political leaders. This individual, you know who his name was? His name was Elliot Spitzer, the former governor of New York. And just three weeks after telling young future political leaders that you need to be tempered in your risk by humility, he was caught hiring a prostitute in New York and then was convicted, sent to jail, and of course no longer the governor of New York. Here's the thing. Risk-taking 
especially us as Americans, is a good thing. But maybe many times what happens is our desire to keep going and pushing and pushing and pushing, many times what comes out of it is sometimes very dangerous. So how do we take risks in the right way? What does it look so we do not jeopardize what God has called us to? What does Ruth show us? I think what we see in this is where does our trust truly lie in taking risk? If our trust in taking risks is based on our own abilities, that can run us into problems. I don't know about you, but maybe you have trusted in your abilities to be able to take risks in certain areas of your life. If you do that enough over time, you're going to run into failures. <laughs> There's going to be times where you're not going to get the job. There's going to be times where you're not going to get the girl. There's going to be times where a financial risk does not pay off. For many of us, that might be your case in life. And it can many times leave us paralyzed, bitter, on the sideline, not wanting to trust anyone else, not wanting to take risks with money or time or whatever it might be. If our trust, maybe not in our own abilities, maybe our trust is that we would receive something in return, pleasure or happiness. That's why we take risks. The problem with this approach is many times when we go after pleasure and happiness, we realize that they can never truly quench our longing. The very quote by Elliot Spitzer. <laughs> Here's a guy that it was the governor that pursued and pursued and pursued. But it was not enough. Hear me. Ruth holds up a mirror to Israel. A mirror to Naomi. To the church. Here is a non-Israelite widow. Poor being discriminated against, hopelessness, that believes that God can do so much in the system of his laws. And she lives in that hope. The problem for us is we do not trust the Lord that he will provide above and beyond anything we could ask or think. We sit paralyzed, not being able to move past the lies in our head that says, I failed before, things do not go well for me, I have been dealt a bad hand, it's never going to go well. And we just sit and do not trust in faith. For some of us, we think, okay, 
God cannot use my current marriage situation, my current job, my current situation to do amazing things in my life. And we doubt. And for some of us, we treat God as karma and calculated risk. I'll give so much to God, I'll do so much, so I get rewards in return. And this story holds a mirror to us. If we even knew how much God can bless us, we wouldn't be calculating how much we have to give because it will always be over and beyond anything we can ask or think. Here's the thing. When I say things like this in a Presbyterian church, some of you might think I've become a health wealth preacher, right? Like I'm just saying, just trust, just do, and you're going to get everything in return. You think I'm talking about money, right? You think I'm talking about perfect relationships. You think I'm talking about those things. Who knows? It could be that. I'm telling you there is something even greater than that. He will give you something even greater than that. And this is what we see in this book. We're introduced to a new character, are we not? Boaz. And we see that in, the, in chapter 2, it's this kind of a coincidence, right? He comes, and it's irony that he uses it. It is no coincidence that Ruth shows up at Boaz's field. In the very beginning, we get the character of who Boaz is. He greets people in that, the Lord be with you, right? That's what we do at church on Sunday morning. And then people are saying, the Lord bless you. You know, this is language you just use and we just think, oh, yeah, it's just something we say. No, here, he believes it. May God be with you. And in that, he will do mighty things for you. He believes this and lives it. And you see how he lives it and how he responds to Ruth. So maybe, I hope, we just don't say these words tritely. <laughs> that when we say, God be with you, that we would know what we're saying to one another. What is Boaz's response going to be to Ruth's audacious request? He says, great, glean among the sheaves. He says, go ahead, between the reapers and the gatherers, you can gather. He says, come, eat among the workers. He says, what, pull out some extra stalks for her. And then he gives her 30 pounds of grain, a half month's labor for workers she goes home with. She receives over and beyond what she is asking for. And then she comes back to Naomi. Bitter. Mara. And then Naomi is asking, oh, where did you get all this stuff? She's like amazed. This is amazing. What happened? And then what you see is this. All that stuff the amazing stuff that she sees is it came from Boaz. Um, 
it's amazing as Boaz goes on and, and he talks about why he gave this to her. He says, you know, I saw what you did for your mother-in-law, that you left your land to be with her. But Boaz also says, I see that you take refuge under the wings of the Lord. He sees that Ruth trusts in God and trusts that um, she trusts in his provision. I just want to give one application point to this. I don't know what it looks like for you to take risks in your life. I don't know everyone's individual story. It might mean giving money to someone in need. It might mean taking time for someone else. It might mean housing someone. It might mean pursuing a relationship. It might mean taking a job that might not pay as much to serve in certain ways. I don't know what the risk is. But I want you to think about what it's like to be under the wings of the Lord in his protection. And to take risks even like Ruth does. Again, Naomi responds, it's amazing you got all this stuff. But then Naomi responds even greater when she hears who she got it from, Boaz. A kinsman redeemer. Now that might not be familiar to you. You've got to read the, the rest of the book of Ruth to, to figure some of these um, things out. But I'm just going to quickly explain that. For Naomi's lineage to be continued, she would have to marry a relative and then have children from that relative to continue the line, to have a land and protection and all these things. Boaz is one of those relatives that could continue the line through Ruth. And it is profound. What we see is that Ruth has nothing to give at all. She is an immigrant. She is from um, someone that's a widow, totally outside the bounds of Israel. But we see that Boaz, who has land and all those things, he comes to save this family. And as we read on, marries Ruth and then has children, and that again continues the line, becomes the grandfather and Ruth, the grandmother of King David. Some uh, commentators um, and some people that um, usually when talking about gender in the Bible have some real problems with the book of Ruth. That it seems very patriarchal. That men are simply coming to save these helpless women. I want to push back on that a lot. Maybe you have that feel about this too. Boaz is this man that saves and all those things. The truth is that we are not supposed to be Boaz in this story. Instead, this story is telling us we are to be like Ruth. It's pointing to Israel and pointing to us, the church today, that we are in need. 
that we are helpless and we must trust in a kinsman redeemer, a greater Boaz, to save us. We are supposed to emulate Ruth. One that trusts in the Lord for someone to come into our helpless state and to save us. And you see what happens with this trust. Again, the grandmother of David. And then more than that, that what comes from that is the Messiah, the one that would be the Savior of all of Israel and the world. I didn't tell you the end of the story about Aaron and I, right? Other, we got married, right? But we weren't dating at that time, right? I think we were, I was still like 17 at that time. And Aaron has always been out of my league, if you guys didn't know that. So, and I never told her, I met her when I was 14, I never told her I liked her, right? And I had been trying to build courage for a long time. And it was a lot of journaling with the Lord, a lot of prayer, a lot of time right? It wasn't until two years after that incident of the canoe ride that I finally told Aaron, listen, I've liked you for five years, and I'm putting myself out there. I have no idea what you think about me, but here it is. Well, it ended well, right? What am I saying? Just believe hard enough. Just take risks. Good things will happen. You'll be like Ruth. You'll be like me. You know, you'll find a wife or whatever it might be. That is not the point. Aaron and I have some lyrics from a song that hang over our bed. And... The song lyrics say this, I've had only one love, and that is what you remind me of. Aaron and I have had one love, Jesus Christ. Our marriage points to his faithfulness and his goodness. That's what it does. Do you think marriage is the solution to my problems? That that saved me? That our marriage is what is totally the joy of all of my life? It's great, don't get me wrong. But there are ups and there are downs. But in the risks, in relationships, in time, in money, in getting involved in a marriage... We can see God's goodness and faithfulness when things go up and down in the things of life. And there are moments, trust me, there are moments in the hardness of my marriage, in the great moments of our marriage, and different risks that I've taken that it's very hard and very difficult, but there are moments that God shows me his goodness. Just moments where I see his plan is so 
beautiful. Ruth didn't see the final plan. She did not see that from her would come King David. From that would come Jesus Christ. But she trusted under the wings of the Lord that God was good. Will you take refuge under the one who delivers? You know, this is what this is this morning. Here's one that took the ultimate risk, right? He trusted in his father. He offered his life to a people that could not give anything in return. That in response, we might have life to abundance. That we might live with him eternally. If our king, if our savior could take that much risk for us, how much more can we return to him? When we bet our lives on God's provision, our reward will be greater than anything we can ever think or imagine.